Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Attention, attention. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We'll get to why uh, we've switched language in a moment. Um, uh, the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray and James Holland. How are you, Jim? Yeah, a bit chilly this morning, but but I quite like it. I prefer it to, to sort of relentless rain and mildness. It bloody cold. It bloody but, cold. Um, it is bloody cold. Bloody cold. Yeah. You know, sort of, again, takes me back to the winters of, you know, 43, 44. <laughs> Gives me a kind of puts me, you know, as, as I'm writing about Italy, yes, gets me in the zone, yes, of and all course. that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. um, but how about you? You've been, you've been manic, haven't you? And can I just say how good it is to kind of not do actung actung? I mean, I just feel we've 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 neglected our foreign languages. Well, I, 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 I will get to why. But um, no, I've been in Jamaica, um, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're you're looking horribly not pale. Uh, well, I, good, good. I'm looking. I, I mean, I'm, I'm comparing the pair because I can see us both. Yeah. You're looking sort of rosy cheeked and, and sort of, you yeah. know, have a nice sort of done hue on your yeah. forehead. Yeah. Whereas I'm just looking white with sort of red patches. But I've also got, you know, uh, lobster pink thighs from the morning we had where we could sit <laughs> in the sun. So so the cameraman at the end of the shoot, he goes, Al, I'm going to have to grade this because you started the, because only, we only filmed for three days. It's such a rush. He said, we're going to have to grade this because you went from pale, pale English winter pasty face to basically burned by the, by the end of the last by the end of the last day so uh but no so we were in jamaica but have i told you uh, you know about well, how you haven't uh, told me anything about it at all but right, i enjoyed okay. the pictures of the cricket ground by christ getting there right yeah go on i mean this isn't really the, this is just the friction of so we get to gatwick on friday last friday God, only last friday yeah, exactly flight to the eleven twenty. Um, I, I, it embarrasses me, but not that much that basically I fly business and then the, t- the crew. <laughs> <laughs> so got to look after the talent. Yeah, I know, but I'm, I'm quite embarrassed about that, but not very much. I know, but you've right? got to perform and they, they have, but not in quite the same way. That's supposedly the calculation. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, so, so but, uh, but, but what we, I always, I always try, cause we're only there for, we're only there for five, six days. I always try and fly on a handbag journey so I can just get off the plane. Right. And they, so they used some of my luggage allowance for some of the crew kit, right? Fine. Okay. Yep. So we get there early, meet the crew, get on the plane, 20 minutes into the flight, the pilot comes on air and goes, is there a doctor, nurse, a midwife or other, any other medical professional on the aircraft, please? Right. I think mm, that doesn't sound good. No, that doesn't sound good, does it? Exactly. Hour and a half later, senior cabin crew to the flight deck, please. I think, oh, no, we're really in trouble. Ten minutes later, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we have a medical emergency on board. We are diverting to Dublin. No. Yeah. And uh, and then we will will refuel and carry on to Kingston. But before we do that, we have to dump fuel. So we're going round and round. You know the little map? Oh, no. So we're going round and round in circles. We're going round and round in circles off the Galway coast. Oh, no. Off the Clifton coast. Going round and round in circles. And then he goes, we can't dump the fuel. I should think not. Well, no, but there's a technical fault, I think, right? Because we're unable to dump the fuel. So what we're going to do is we're going to fly down to low level and fly around with the undercarriage down to burn uh, the fuel off. This will probably take two hours. And you're like, okay, this is just... This is getting bad. This is crap, right? And and then it was like, you know, when it, it was like driving round and round and roundabout in second gear, you know, ah, like yeah, that, yeah, quite yeah, low. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See the sea out the window. So we're going round and round in the big tilt. And then he goes, actually, we're not going to Dublin anymore. We're going back to Gatwick. So we go back to Gatwick. <laughs> and I, I want to say that the crew, the, the crew were the crew on this BA flight were amazing. Karen and beautiful people, beautiful people, lovely people. Um, and we landed and then, and they kind of said, Oh, and we all looked out the window. There's a fuel bowser. So we're thinking, right, we will go on to Jamaica, on to Kingston. And then, uh, and then we sat on the runway for two hours and the, the, the person who wasn't well was escorted off the aircraft by paramedics and I think to some booing. And then, <laughs> what? Well, they just had a slightly chippy tummy. Well, I, I don't want to go. I don't want to go into what happened, but as false alarms go, anyway, or, or unnecessary, <laughs> or as unnecessary, or as unnecessary. Well, they could have manned up, is what basically. Well, no, it's a, totally as unnecessarily totally avoidable things go. But basically, I, I befriended some soldiers on the aircraft who were going to do some jungle training with the JDF, and they had a doctor with them, and she'd been the doctor who'd come forward. So I found out actually. A, actually what had gone on rather than rely on 
rumor within the aircraft. But anyway, so we fly back to we fly back to Gatwick, land in Gatwick. We're on the runway two hours, and then the pilot goes, "Ladies and gentlemen, we're a quarter and quarter of an hour past the past our limit for when we can turn around and fly on to Kingston again today." Do you think you? Why not say that a one minute past the you know you bugger? So then we we're all stuck in hotels, put into hotels, texted and told we'll be flying off again in the morning. And the next morning, I, I, I couldn't sleep very well. I woke up at six. And there's a text going, we've moved the flight and other anything. Right, here we go. We're never getting to Jamaica now. And the thing is, is the rest of the crew are there. The producer, the director, they're there. They've got yeah. all the filming scheduled. The clock with is the, ticking. With the fixer. And, yep. and the idea was the first day we were there was our, like, just get the script settled, talk about what we're going to do, a little bit of recce, little bit of pool time and then film start filming on the Sunday. And we lost all that. Anyway. Well you can forget that. Forget yes. that. But we so we flew out to we so we the second day we flew out and it was it was very sweet. Everyone was very friendly on the aeroplane on the second attempt to get to Jamaica. We we're all great pals. <laughs> and it was actually quite a laugh the second flight. So you know How long does it take? What, seven hours? Six hours? It's nine hours out. Oh. Nine and a half hours out. And then you're kind of eight hours back because you get blown over by the Westerly. (laughs) Uh, The jet stream giving giving you one of the hours. Exactly. But but, but we went went to the JDF, um, the headquarters of the JDF, um, uh, their big base in Kingston. That's the Jamaica Defence Force. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was absolutely fascinating. And their, their war graves, we went to the big cemetery and we looked at their war graves, you know, because there's, there's a first world war fighter race and then there's a load of second world war people. Um, mm. some of them from all over the world Very and good. some of them, and some of them, uh, obviously, Jam- and some Jamaicans as well. But, but you really got the sense. Uh, and, and there's that, you know, it's the thing we talked to. It was Mark, wasn't it? Um, the other week, which went out the other day. Yeah. Really got the sense of, you know, where that service fitted into um, Jamaicans' view of how they could, basically, how they could create the bona fides they needed to, to um, get independence. And, and that, it, it was absolutely fascinating. And talking, we talked to some JDF, old school JDF people about it as well for the programme and how they feel about it. And a woman whose grandfather was a First World War ace. Wow. And just Or no, father was a First World War ace. And uh, uh, just absolutely fascinating and that global imperial aspect of the british war effort the duke aspect it's the e in duke yeah, 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 jamaica yeah, yeah. at that point yeah right yeah really 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 fascinating i bet uh, you know and we ended up we ended up we did end up talking about slavery and we'd ended up discussing the question of reparation and all that mm. sort of stuff which is which is a very hot topic there at the moment because I think I Barbados Barbados have just um, quit the Commonwealth. Yeah, they've done the King. That's what they've definitely yeah. done. Didn't they? I don't yeah. know that they're out. Of the I don't know if they're out of the Commonwealth. Anyway, but it's just interesting how that is hanging. That's hanging heavy. In, in it's a, an amazingly, it was an amazingly beautiful country, and I would go back there in a heartbeat. Well, Jamaica. Yeah, and the people. But you didn't feel intimidated because a lot of people said to me that it's quite intimidating. I didn't know, but we were rolling with a big crew and all that sort of thing. But, but yeah, I guess no, but and the people I met were fantastic. Right, so everything about it. And also, we were told we had to eat KFC, so we did, and it was brilliant, as well as all the curried goat and everything. Oh, right. Okay, fine. <laughs> the local KFC, yeah. we told you, you've got to eat. Our KFC is the best KFC in the world. They're all saying, all right. And was it? Right. It was really nice don't KFC. Know. I don't think I've eaten KFC since about 1994. I'm I'm something of a connoisseur. But the, but the, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> but the point is... It's, well, it, hasn't my, been a, it hasn't been a kind of like, a, I'm, I'm not making a big stand or anything. I just... No, 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 I get it. I get it. But what was really interesting is that is that... You know, I, and I was saying to these guys, because they're arguing, they're, they're not arguing, but they're like discussing what would reparation be? Who would get it? Would you give it yeah. to the government? Well, no one trusts the government in Jamaica. Would no, you give it? Not. You know, so what you end up with is the educationalists want it for education. The infrastructure yeah. people want it for infrastructure. You know, the, the cultural people want it for culture. So basically it, it, it's turning into a thing where people, <laughs> all the, all the, you know, all the, all the elites or all, all the, all the specific interests, they want it for their interest, which is, which is just like, that's completely believe a complete understandable, normal, and also a bit, also a bit sad <laughs> in a way. And then I yeah. said, and I said, but the other thing is, is you've then got to come and persuade the British establishment that that's what they want to do. You know, once you've settled your internal argument, if you yeah. ever can, you're then going to have to come here, come to London and talk mm. London into giving you this money. But what was amazing was we're, we're driving on the road. So you go over the mountains on a high, from Kingston to go to Montego Bay, you go over the mountains on a highway that the Chinese built, on a great big motorway that the Chinese have built for them. And funnily enough, the other thing is, is it really reminded me of Crete because it's... Hot, sunny, surrounded by sea. It's Well, well no, but it's mainly <laughs> coastal. Great big long coastal strip, the mountains in the interior. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of long and thin, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And you go along, you're going on the coast bit, and it's all very touristy. We're sort of advertising, and and there's always building, and there's always development, and then there's there's these sort of touristy towns, and then there's the towns where the, where the actual inhabitants live, and all that, mm-hmm. right? And yep. it really, really, really reminded me of of Crete, you know, which I went to in May, and I said that to my the co-presenter, the Jamaican co co-presenter. He said, "Where's that?" I thought, "All right, okay." My Eurocentric view of the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's not helping right now um, but, but, but it must have been fascinating because you know when you go to jamaica the last thing you're thinking about is contributions to the second world war i would yeah. say even even you and yeah. i yeah, are, yeah, are yeah, not yeah. really that's not the forefront of our mind you know i'm thinking kind of bob marley cricket yep. you know yep. beach yeah all that kind exactly. of stuff swimming with exactly. dolphins and 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 so fascinating to get that insight and that that is one of the joys of telly isn't it is is that you go to these places and you get little insights that you're not going to get unless you're doing telly you're getting this access to stuff. And yeah. suddenly you're talking about reparations and people, which which I'd put very, very high money on, would not cross your mind had you not, if you'd been there just well, on holiday. Well, my my producer, uh, producer director said to me, basically, he's talking to, he, you know, he's got the whole program kind of, as far as he can say, he's got the whole program kind of worked out. And then he said to Chris, the Chris Daly, this comic, he said, um, anything else? And he goes, reparation. It's like, all oh, right, okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we will have to include that then. But I mean, it was so we did, so we, did, I mean, we did a, a wide variety of stuff, including drinking some extremely expensive and delicious rum. And mm. I'm not really, I'm not really a rum I'm drinker, not a rum but, connoisseur, but you can no, learn a bit more about it than you did. Well, uh, absolutely. And, and it's got all, <laughs> it's got all high end and they're, and they're using, mm. they're using whiskey barrels to ferment it and all that sort of thing. Wow. And, okay. And because it's warm, it, it cooks off quicker than a scotch. So they're saying like a, a three year old, Jamaican rum is, or a five-year-old Jamaican rum is like a fifteen-year-old whiskey in terms. Is that of, so? Yeah. So, is, so is rum is rum more sort of climate attuned than? Yeah. You know, is, is rum is better for kind of a hot climate than a whiskey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rum, rum is like it is because of the hot climate. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, that's a much better yeah. way of saying it. Yeah. Yeah, and whiskey's okay. like it is because it's cold. And uh, but but right. uh, but but we drank some very very nice. And I'm not really, I don't not really a rum drinker, but I brought I brought some back with me. But but anyway, we nice. we, we had a fascinating we had a fascinating time, and it was that thing that because of a history program, you end up doing all these sort of. I mean, and it's the way we, it's the way that, that um, the, the guy I work with likes to do it, where you take it a wide range of stuff and then you try and, you try and sort of stick it all together. I mean, all the stuff about piracy and the Royal Navy, how basically, mm. you know, Captain Morgan takes over as governor general of um, Jamaica and yes. he's a, he's a pirate and they just basically say, well, you're in the Navy now, mate, and you're in charge. Yeah. And that the Royal Navy's piratical routes. Yes. As far, uh, you know, the, given how sort of senior... Well, Drake senior. is effectively a pirate, isn't he? Well, they all are. They're buccaneers. They're kind exactly. of... They're private, privateers, isn't that the word? Well, that's the word if you don't want to use the word pirate. That's a euphemism. Yeah. For, yeah. yeah. But the, but we talked about all that, and I think... It, but, you know, the Navy, the Navy being the sort of senior service and all very serious and connected to... Connected came to the, that way. The, the royal family and all that sort of thing. Well, yeah, but... But it's origin. To be fair, pirates were kind of you know the, the age of buccaneers was you know what are we talking about eighteenth century, seventeenth century, quite a long time ago. I mean, you know, yeah. But but <laughs> but so what you're saying is so saying is the Royal Navy is blighted forevermore by its. Well, no, I just basically when it when it sort of has its sort of po face, it is terribly serious and all that sort of thing. Just consider just go, that, Captain Morgan, son. Well, exactly. Start of the eighteenth century, <laughs> end of the end of the eighteenth century. You know, end of the eighteenth century, it's Nelson, but mm. the start of the eighteenth century. It's very, it is. It's pretty piratey. <laughs> <laughs> that, I love a good pirate yarn. I've got to say. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But although, although we did do, we did do a stack of stuff about, you know, walking the plank. Right, that's from yeah. Peter Pan. That's not a pirate thing. Um, they never did it. Nope. You'd get keelhauled. You just killed and chucked over, right? Yeah, yeah. Keelhauled or left on an island with a glass of water and a, and a pistol to kill yourself with a, with a bottle of water and a pistol. Right. Right. Um, you're marooned, basically. Yeah. Um, but also, but really interesting is the is the pirate code where you'd all agree on the contract when you got on the boat, so you all knew what the deal was mm-hmm. and, and what the shares were, and it was all it was all carved almost out. Almost communism. Well, democratic corporatism is the way we looked at it. <laughs> democratic corporatism, I like it. Very yeah. strong. Yeah. Anyway, but um, but while I was away, <laughs> yes. I've been reading this Douglas Porch book about. Well, hold on, um, can I can I just say yeah, one yeah. thing? What have we you get, been up to? Sorry, well, yeah. What have you been? No, up to? no. It, 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 you know, it's just Italy, 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 yeah, Italy, yeah, Italy. Yeah. But um, I just want to mention something because I caught up with my friend Sam the other day, yeah. and uh, he's a guy who is overseeing the project for the typhoon, the Hawker Typhoon Preservation Group. 
Yeah. And they're having a really, really tough time. So yep. I said, well, I will mention it on the podcast because I do think it's a good thing. And I do remember very, very clearly talking to Roland B. Beaumont yeah. years ago, just before he died. And he was bemoaning the fact that the RAF had never had the sense to kind of box up two of everything. Yeah. When they had yeah. the chance, they were just yeah, chucking yeah, things yeah, into yeah, the sea yeah, and kind of yeah. just stripping them down, getting rid of them all. And saying, oh, what a tragedy it was, it wasn't a typhoon. Of course, he was, um, uh, he was obviously very instrumental in the development of the typhoon and all the rest yeah. of it. So it was very, very sort of close to his heart. And, you know, so it was good to catch up with Sam Worthington Lease and, and hear about the project, but also kind of just a bit sad that, you know, because of COVID, because of everything that's going on, you know, funds have dried up and, and you know, it's sort of languishing a little bit. Uh, and, you know, it's an amazing thing and it would be incredible to see that plane yeah. flying yeah. again. Yeah. And, you know, it sort of came to its, its sort of zenith in the second half of the war. And, and there is this sort of feeling that by then, if you're a fighter pilot or a ground attack pilot, it's kind of comparatively easy meat because you've kind of seen off the Luftwaffe and yeah. what's it to do. But the fact of the matter is there were kind of 666 typhoon pilots, which is obviously not a good number, um, and, and 56% of them were lost, Jesus which is high. Christ. And there's only one typhoon, a known typhoon pilot still alive, and he's 101. That's um, bomber command levels of loss, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. It, well, it's actually more. Yes, I yeah. think it's yeah, worse. Just, yeah. So I don't know. I, I do feel it's part of the RF heritage. I do feel it's important plane. And I think it would be great to sort of, um, for everyone who's listening, you know, kind of five are here, 10 are there. It all yeah. adds up, doesn't it? You know, I mean, so anyway, so if anyone's interested in this, um, it is, uh, the, the website is hawkertyphoon.com. Right. Um, and I know they'd be absolutely delighted to, to hear from you and, and they're sort of putting it together and there's, and, and they're talking about all the different projected costs. It's quite interesting. They've got a sort of cutaway yeah. of all the different bits and yeah. what each bit costs and how they're going to do it and all the rest of it. And they've got the full history of RB396, which is the one they're, yeah. they're, um, restoring and, and who was flying it and all that kind of stuff. And, and they're really good people. And what I love about them, they're not doing this for the money. They're not doing it to sell it on or anything like this. They're doing it purely to get, to it, get to it in the, in the sky. They're doing it for yep. all hundred percent, the right reasons. So it'd be really good for people to support yep. it if they possibly can. Although yep. I appreciate times are tough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'll, I'll be, I'll be dipping then for that. Yeah, yeah, so, I think I'm good sure. for a bit. Some of our listeners shall. Uh, yeah. Anyway. So, so yeah, so that's that bit. Uh, and how are you getting on with Italy? The problem is with writing a book like this is that I'm trying to do it a bit differently. I'm trying to up the game with the writing style. Mm. And there are unavoidable things that you just simply have to confront. And that is that every book has to stand alone on its own merit. And you yeah. can have no preconceived knowledge or, you know, they don't, you, you can't assume that people have read Sicily or they know what happened in yeah. the run-up. So you've got to do all the bloody backstory. You know, you've just got to explain who Eisenhower is and who Alexander is and who Kesselring yeah. is and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's just, I, f- I find it frustrating because I just want to get on with it, you know, and I am getting on with it. But but I reckon I reckon two-thirds of the writing time is spent with the first quarter of the book. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of almost through that tunnel. But because you've only written a quarter of a book and deadline is 17th of March, Feels like I've got a hell of a long way to go. So I'm, I'm taking myself off to a cottage in Cornwall on Saturday where I'm basically going to stay until I've got a kind of the lion's share of it done. Going into exile. I'm going to exile, basically. It's the only way I can do it. If I can, if I can just be on my own, be completely selfish, and I get into a very, very, um, strict routine, which is lights out by kind of 10, 10, 30, up at six, cup of tea at my desk by kind of quarter past, 20 past, work till eight, 20 minutes of breakfast, work till 11. Walk for an hour and a half, come back, keep going. Just basically just keep going till about nine o'clock. What are we talking 120,000 words? No, a bit more than that. 170, 170, oh. 160, 180. I've done 35. Starting's the hard part. Yeah, the start, start is definitely the hard part. It's just organising people. And, and it's also introducing new people. And, and once you've introduced them, you're kind of on it. But, but then you're yeah. worried that the, the actual words... The writing is just not exciting enough when you're introducing people because you're spending too much time introducing them. Yeah. But there's no way around it. Yeah. It, you know, you can't explain, you, you've got to explain who Laurie Franklin Vale is. There's, there's no two ways about it. I mean, I'm very confident about the characters. I'm very happy that, that all that material is tickety boo and A1 and full of exciting stuff and stories yeah. and, and, yeah. and all the rest of it. But it's just, yeah, it's just. <laughs> you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it, wouldn't they? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, yes, r- writing. Is agony. 
I mean, someone, someone said to me the other day, they said, they said, oh, you know, I've got this... I've got this memoir, kind of, you know, I've got this amazing material about about my grandfather in the war, and you know, I really like to put it into a book. Mm. <laughs> material might be amazing, but if you can't write, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, that's the challenge. Yeah, how to make it good? There's got to be another way of writing writing a, a traditional narrative nonfiction book that's entertaining, but but it's kind of just not formulaic command in all good bookshops now <laughs> well there is that yes exactly well you're you're doing that you're breaking down that four four well i don't know very effectively I, lovely I review the other day in the in the back magazine by the way yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, that was great wasn't it yeah yeah lovely it was a really really good review that it was, it was he read it properly yeah it's bloody hard though i mean we now we now sound like people think writers are sat on their ass all day and you know what they are but um it can be really actually i want to withdraw that it's bloody hard it's it's not we're not down a coal mine but it is, um, yeah. We're not doing brain surgery, are we? No, but, it's it's tricky, isn't it? Well, it requires a lot of it requires a lot of of brain time and mental and plate spinning. Mental plate spinning, exactly that. And it's just it's just it is it's not easy. And 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 also, I think you know, I mean, I, you know, my absolute fear is becoming complacent about this and oh yeah, just sort of toss out another campaign history. You know, these, these things they've got to be good. You know, people yeah. are investing time, they're, they're investing money, and they're investing their, their their precious time to read it. You know, it's got to be tip top. I mean, it's interesting though because I was talking to uh, I did a I did a gig on Saturday night and talked to Mark Steeles and oh, he's a, such a nice bloke, isn't yeah, he? Loveliest man, and I've known him a very long time. And he said, "Do you?" He, he goes, "Um, I'm oh, going out again soon." And he says, you, "I mean, it doesn't get any easier, does it? Writing this stuff." I, said, I do worry. I do worry. And, you know, it was rather nice to have a sort of candid moment where you go, actually, yes, when you've when you finished one show and you have to start writing another, you think, oh, God, blank page, nightmare. Yeah. You know, th- yeah. th- even though your experience obviously means you you kind of know which trees to bark up and maybe how to bark, if you sort of mean. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get it right. And that's the it doesn't get that aspect doesn't get any easier. I think is the thing. I don't know. I, I said every every time I start about to start a book, I just think, oh bloody hell, how do I do this? Um, yeah. You know, yeah. What, what, what's the trick again? I, I don't know. I, I mean, what what I would say is, is that I've I've done more research on this book than I have on literally any other, and and I also have a a much clearer <laughs> understanding of what it was like to have been there than I have before any other book I've started. Oh, that's and I would also say that the material I've got is, is, is better, more dramatic, more moving, more upsetting than anything I've ever come across before. Yeah. So all the ingredients are there, whether I can pull it off or not is, is another matter, but, yeah. but it's certainly not for lack of material. Yeah. Good. Anyway, so oh. that's where I'm at. Well, should we take, should we take a quick break and then come back to talk about um, Douglas Porch's book about France? Why not? Yeah. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Uh, bienvenue, in fact, as we... Uh... <laughs> I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this slip into French. I think it's, I think it's good. Well, so I, I picked up Defeat and Division, yep. um, uh, uh, France in the Second World War, Douglas Porch's new new one, which is a France at War, 39-42, which is interesting. So he's it's not the whole story. So where, so where, does, it, where does he stop? Does he stop with Torch or something? Well, it kind of is stopping around Torch. It's the, the odd bit where he overshoots into 43, but... Torch, I should say. So, so I've been... I should also just say that Tony has told me off for not explaining things. So, ah. so uh, previous episodes, if anyone was wondering what the ETO is, it's the European Theatre of Operations. So that's Northwest Europe, 44-50. And Torch, Operation no- Torch... November the 8th, 942. It's the Allies landing on the coast of North Africa in Morocco and Algiers, basically, um, as was. And uh, in three conglomerate landings, one run mm-hmm. by the Americans, one by the other two by the Royal Navy. Um, and it's an Anglo, uh, Ike Eisenhower. It's a, a, and Mark a, Clark. A Mark Clark. It's a joint operation uh, by the British and the Americans, British First Army, a part of this effort. They're shipped straight from Liverpool, basically, straight from England, straight, straight. They go through the Straits of Gibraltar on the morning of the 5th of uh, November. Uh, one of the French generals said, that don't be ridiculous. There's absolutely no way there's a fleet off off uh, Morocco and in the morning gets his binoculars out and there's 55 warships. And- <laughs> <laughs> the sea is black with warships. Yeah, exactly, and so on. Uh, 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 and But th- this book, so it ends with, it kind of ends with Torch but, and there's the really, really, really interesting stuff. Well, hold on, which, what we should just say is that the key point about where they're landing is that they're landing in Vichy owned North Africa. North Africa. Yeah. And yeah. Vichy being pro access as opposed to pro access because of the French, because of the armistice 
uh, the deal that the French strike with the Germans after their defeat in June, in the Battle of France. Yeah, uh, Vegan is the general uh, in charge of the French army at that point. He's been brought in to sort things out. And Pétain, Marshal Pétain, the hero of Verdun, is brought in to run this pup. Well, it's a puppet government, but it thinks it isn't. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, Got yeah. delusions of grandeur. Well, uh, and this book is this book is absolutely fascinating. So he really. So I mean, there's an awful lot about pre-war France and about what's going on. Mm. But I bet that's fascinating, isn't it? Because quite often we don't delve back. I mean, I find it, it's, it's very easy to just go straight to kind of 1939. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and you do miss out on all this stuff. And, and France yeah. is, is so politically divided, isn't it? So, so what did, what did you learn about France in the 1930s? I'm quite, quite intrigued. Well, I mean, what's really interesting is, is, is that the, the currents in the Third Republic are all really, they're all, there's endless coalitions. And, and basically the emergency that is de- developing in Europe is a thing that coalitions can't deal with, right? It runs, too fast for coalition governments to respond to. So, for instance, the Popular Front government, they, they start this to string together. This is Leon Bloom. Get, yeah, Bloom. He starts to string together a response. But basically, to what's happening in Europe, and, you know, uh, and France being embarrassed by the Rhineland, or the Germans moving to the right, all that sort of thing. And he can't quite do it. And the government's always fray and come apart. But but also, am I right in saying, saying that the French coalitions, I mean, they're not kind of sort of Lib Dems and the Conservatives as it was, was in, in over no, here. It, no. It's like... Eight different parties, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Or twelve exactly, or something. I mean, exactly it's a ludicrous number. But basically, a lot of what this book's tackling is that post-war, you've got the issue in France of how you tell the history of what of what happened in the Second World War. How do you grasp that nettle? How do you? How on earth do you approach the fact that the French army completely falls over itself? And then, what did Vichy do in the years that it was in power? to try and write some history in a real hurry during the war to legitimise itself, to get the army off the hook for what had happened in 1940. Because after all, that, if you're, you know, a lot of people say, well, look, the Third Republic, the interwar years, France is dissolute, it's politically irresolute, it's fallen apart, it's corrupt, it's decadent. And decadent is the, yep. decadent is the word about the yeah, Third and, Republic. Yeah, and, and that's right? a bad word. And that's a bad word, especially if you're up against... The Nazis, whose whole thing is decadence is the enemy of thrusting, f- grasping, uh, moving forward government. Yes, because there's no discipline, there's no, Ex- there's exactly. no organization, everyone's exactly. too busy. Exactly. Doing what and what's doing. quite good about Porch is he's an entertaining writer. So he calls Bonnet a bedwetter at one point, right? Um, so, nice. so, so the prose is kind of, the prose is, you know, it's, it's coming off the bat very, very sort of nicely yeah, the way, yeah, the way he yeah. writes. But basically, because, because Vichy wants to form an army, although it's obviously it's a, a denuded army, it's not allowed any tanks or, or artillery over 75 millimeters, all that sort of thing. And it's not allowed a defensive posture and all that sort of thing. So the, so the Vichy government adopts <laughs> this. This whole thing completely pointless. Well, well it? of course. <laughs> ex, ex, but what it is, is it's a way of having prestige within the Vichy state, right? You need organs of the state because the Third Republic's collapsed completely. You need something to pin it on. You're led by a field marshal. So you're going you're gonna to lean into the army as your way of, of, of doing things. So he argues, Porch argues, because after all, you know, one of the received views of what happens to France in after the collapse, after the breakthrough at, at Sedan and all that sort of stuff, there's the hedgehogs around Paris where the French fight the Germans to a standstill and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Or finally the Germans get to Paris. And Porch argues that actually, you know what? That battle isn't as rosy as has been made out. And the people that have made that out to be a sort of successful French army face-saving confrontation between the French and the Germans is are Vichy propaganda writers. And that that Vichy bit of propaganda has been so successful that you now have people who tell you, actually, the French, once they'd sort of gathered their skirts up and got over the shock of Sedan, were able to fight the Germans pretty efficiently in their hedgehogs. It's just that, you know, the political leadership decided the game was up, not the army. Now, what's that? That's a stab in the back, myth. <laughs> yeah, if ever there was one. And also it's nonsense. And it's, it's junk, right? And it's just really, really interesting because what then the Vichy, the Vichy government then dish out medals for people fighting in that phase of the Battle of France. Tons of medals, right? Because what they want to do is inject prestige into the army for their, their, you, you know, new government mm-hmm. and their new post-revolutionary French settlement within France Libre, right? It's so interesting. And he, 
you know, I, I mean, what he's really, really good about, what he's really, really good on as well is, is the Allied Long War strategy. You know, and we've talked about this an awful lot in the podcast. If you're new to the podcast, Allied Long War strategy is the idea that what you're going to do now there's a war with Germany, the British Royal Navy will blockade Germany and the French army will keep the German army at bay like 1418. But the difference is, is we know now how to win a 1418 war in the way we didn't in 1418 to start with. So we're going to we're going to use economic pressure to make the Germans implode because there's a feeling that the Germans always will mm. implode in British and French uh, political establishments. Uh, it's not unfounded, to be fair. It's not unfounded, but also given the state of the French uh, political establishment, the idea that they're looking to other people to implode is a little bit of projection, maybe. But but <laughs> it's really fascinating, and basically, Porch says historians have said, you know, uh, re- look look at it and go, actually, you know, you look at it, it's the sensible strategy. But what Porch says is the French government never made it clear that that's what its strategy was. The French public never understood that what a uh, French and British were planning to do was like contain Germany, hold Germany in place and wear it down with a long... So basically they do this mass levee. And then don't, don't, then don't explain what their plan is. Don't explain what their plan is and then don't do anything, right? And he says, you know, you look at Churchill's attitude and even though Churchill's attitude leads to the Norway disaster, right? He says Churchill's attitude... And certainly once Churchill's in charge, Churchill's thing is we need incremental successes. We need to look active. We need to act engaged in this war, because if you don't, what will happen is the public tide will go out and you'll lose political support for the war. And that you, what you need is permanent, relentless advocacy through action in order to persuade people of the rightness of your uh, of cause. Of which, of course, he's absolutely right. I mean, the point is, he gets a, Churchill gets a lot of, this is just a, a, a very, very minor um, yeah. uh, rabbit hole, but Churchill gets a very bad press for, uh, uh, at the time and since, and everyone sort of says, oh, everyone blames Chamberlain, but actually it was Churchill's idea to go and mine the leads up in Norway, yeah. which is, yeah. but basically the whole idea is that the Sweden, Swedish iron ore comes from the northern part of Sweden, has to go through Norway to get to Germany. Yeah. So if you, if you can block that exit point, then then Germany doesn't get its iron ore. So that was the whole plan. But when he suggested it in September 1939, it was a really, really good idea. The problem was yeah. that no one ag- could agree to do it until April 1940, by which point yeah. kind of the moment had passed. So that that's the problem with it. It wasn't the problem in itself was, was an, you know, the, the suggestion in itself was a bad idea. It was the, it, it was the timing and, impl- and where it was implemented. Although the point Porch makes is that at that point, the Germans have got their, tactical operational stuff together you know they're really slick at that point because they're motivated mm-hmm. whereas the british and the french have not because they're not motivated back to the 3ms yeah exactly and 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 the whole thing unravels but 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 i mean it's very interesting as well because he looks at he looks at you know he's got lots of diaries that sort of back up the feeling in the french army you know mm. jean paul sartre is one of his sort of witnesses and yeah yeah no he's great iron in the souls fantastic book um, well on may the 11th when the when the you know day 2 of 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 operation yellow the German invasion of, of France and the Lowlands, uh, Sartre is like, well, I've not got to come in anyway today because it's my day off. <laughs> yeah. Does he Does he look at René Chambrun? He's I interesting. Think, yeah, I think so, always- yeah, yeah. But it's, I was just, just struck by, by Sartre saying that. There is no sense of urgency in the French establishment from top to bottom. It's my day off. He's writing to Simone de Beauvoir. It's my day off, so I'm not going in, you know. Like- yeah. And if they think if they think I'm going to fight today, they've got another thing coming. Yeah, exa- exactly. But basically, he, what, what's interesting is he says, is he says the problem with the long war strategy for Europe is it rests on the assumptions that the French army is effective, right? That the war would remain localized because after all, the Royal Navy, right? Yeah, it can blockade Germany, but the Royal Navy has global responsibilities. Yeah. Right. And it, let's think. Let's say Italy get involved, then that's much more difficult, and they do, of course. And let's say Japan become involved, and it's not improbable, especially if yeah. Europe becomes a major entanglement for the British. Because maintaining an economic blockade is a hell of a commitment. It's a major effort, right? So basically, basically, he says it's based on some pretty fragile assumptions about the way things might move in the future, mm. and, and, and so. So, you know, it's they haven't really got thing. any alternative, have they, apart from going straight into, into Germany? That's exactly the point he makes. And, it, and it's the, the, the other thing is, you know, there's this idea as well. Oh, don't worry. The colonies will provide tons of people, right? And the, they, they've got 60, 65% wastage in the AEF and then 75% in the Western Sudan. They're, they're, they're massive wastage because, because of underinvestment in their colonies. The French 
haven't got healthy people in their colonies who they can use as riflemen. Right. right. Because people are starving and mal- malnourished because of underinvestment in the colonies. So it's this idea, we've got an empire, that'll be all right, don't worry about it. But the empire's already falling apart at the seams the anyway. The empire's falling apart at the seams anyway. So, that, so, so, and he's really good on this because, because obviously the arguments, there are all these historiographical arguments still going on within France as to, you know, what the Gaullist argument is. And the Gaullist argument, of course, has to kind of like sidestep some of it and also paint de gaulle as this visionary this military visionary from before the war you know as this this lone voice yeah. railing railing against against a brick wall of conservatism and blah 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 or, and actually you know then the germans prove him right with their use of armored warfare although you know he wasn't quite proposing what they end up doing but yeah and he was I, I, he wasn't being a massive advocate for radio comms no, exactly. and that, that Which that, is that, really, the, you know, you yeah. can argue is the key to yeah. it rather than... But he goes into, you know, French radio broadcasts during the period of the, of the phony war are regarded as patronising and predictable and, re- you know, really, really, really not delivering a message to the French people as to what the war's about. And he says, so basically, you go from Munich, where there's this colossal outrage, public outrage in France about what's happened in Munich. We must do something about Hitler. And that, that propels... You've got all French- that energy. You've got that, You've that, got that movement. Energy. Everyone's there. Exactly. And then you do nothing. And he, he, he says that, you know, because, because there's this argument about, is the army the product of the state, the society? Or is it its own product because it's so... Big well, politics always, I mean, as, you, as you've, you've been pointing out the last few weeks, yeah. I mean, politics always comes into it. And so if your yeah. political leadership is weak, then your military yeah. leadership is going to be weak. It's just as, yeah. you know, sure as night follows day. I mean, it's interesting. What I do remember from, from studying the Tsar campaign, which is in October, you know, September, late September, oh, yeah. October 1939. I mean, basically, Germany's got its hands full with, with Poland. So the French yeah. think, well, hang on a minute, let's just go into the Tsar, which is the yeah. kind of Western Germany bit. And we'll just go in and we we'll just go straight into, in, into Berlin. It could be really, really easy. And do you know what? They're absolutely right. It should have been. And, and what I do remember from, from looking at personal accounts is that the French are up for it. The, Fre- the individual French soldiers at the junior level, they're, they're up for it. Yeah. You know, let's yeah. go and give these Bosch a, a whipping and show them who's who. Yeah. And it's all there. The, the energy is there. The motivation is there. The morale is there. And what happens in the, is, is that they don't do anything. They go yeah. over, they, 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 they sally forth, stop, pull back again. And the whole thing is a total damp squib. And by yeah. the time it gets to May, they've had this long, cold winter. Winter's obviously yeah. very harsh in the Second World War. And yeah. then morale has just fallen to rock bottom because nothing's yeah. happened. They're away from home. It's all stultifying. Yeah. It's the Boer War, which comes the phony war. Yeah. And, and all initiative that they might have had is just gone. I mean, is, is, is Porch in sort of large agreement with that? Or is that, am I off That's the mark? That's basically what he's saying. I mean, there's a report um, in, in 1942 about 3940 from General Recan of the 4th Army, his 4th Army commander. Well, in fact, in fact, he's reporting in 1940 on the Tsar offensive. And he says, too much rigidity in their dispositions, failure to use the terrain effective, absolute repugnance to enter wooded territory they did, where they did not know how to advance, and the tendency for the platoons to coagulate around the machine gun rather than advancing by squads. So basically, there's no, you know, the training's terrible, the impetus is falling apart, but the whole command, the whole command structure in the French army is incredibly top heavy, isn't yeah, it? It's, top it's heavy very, very cumbersome, which stifles the, the use of initiative and all that kind of stuff. And they're using telephones, and the wires get cut. But really, he's really interesting about the Maginot Line, right? Mm, yeah, go on. Em. Well, the Maginot Line is sort of presented as case for the um, the prosecution against the sort of stagnancy of French military. And, and this is this is the bit that protects the, the eastern border of France with Germany, yeah. sort of basically along the Rhine, up until kind of just south of Sedan. So the northern bit, which borders Luxembourg yeah. and, um, and Belgium, yeah. there's nothing. Yeah. But there is with the German border. So this is Alsace-Lorraine, isn't it? And all the way down. So what he talks about, and there's this one clause in the opening paragraph about the Maginot Line that leapt out at me. It substituted concrete for French blood that had been shed in 1914-18. Now, that is still not flesh. Right there. Concrete for blood. And which we've talked about an awful lot on the podcast and regular listeners, forgive us, but if if anyone, because we, we know people are joining us as we go. We, we, the steel, not flesh is the, we've talked about it very much as the British, the allied way of doing things. What you do is you use your technological advantage. So you don't have to get people killed. Yeah. And broadly speaking, it's incredibly sensible policy and broadly speaking from an allied point of view works. Yeah. 
Well, and so what he talks about is the Maginot line. Is that's what its intention is, and also what it, the idea is that it it creates a, a barrier that means that you know where the Germans are going to try and fight their war of manoeuvre, which is not at the Maginot line. So it's perhaps I mean the, the unfortunate conclusion of this is that means you really need to be watching the RDN a lot more closely. Yes, because I don't have a problem with the Maginot line at all in principle. Yeah. It seems incredibly sensible because no one does try and go through the Maginot Line. Yeah. So, so you know, France has got an absolutely massive border, and what it's doing is it's reducing its border by fifty percent, which seems to be incredibly yeah. sensible to me. You know, and using concrete, not blood. You know, what, what's not to like? Exactly. And so, what they then do is order loads of tanks to have a mobile. Fo- you know, the, the, the tanks that France has, and on paper, the French are better armed tank wise than the Germans are, and but, but, but double the number of artillery pieces, which is the yeah, key yeah. thing. Yeah. Well, although they're all crap. Yeah, but you can still fire a shell. I mean, you know, the yes, but the artillery control bases tend to be ten miles from their batteries, yeah. so there's a communication problem. There's the story of there's um, a structural problem. There's a structural problem at every level of the French army. That's the that's the issue, really, isn't structural it? Structural problems to the point of you know, th- th- there's you know, there's the story of a guy at Dunkirk who sees Germans crossing a canal at Dunkirk, calls for an artillery barrage, and the barrage happens the next day. There you are. That, 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 that's France in 1940 yeah. all over. So they, they've worked out that you need lots of mobile forces. They've worked out that you need lots of firepower. They, they've worked out that you need modern industry and technological yeah. know-how to reduce the number of people that you're going yeah. to slaughter at the front line. What they haven't worked out is is that actually the key to manoeuvre in 1918 and the war of manoeuvre uh, developed after the um, during and then following the French, I mean, the German big um, spring offensive of, of 1918 was the ability to communicate and exploit success. Yeah. And that's what they haven't worked out. So they've worked out everything except that. So the comms is a bit, is, is the kind of, that trumps almost everything because that that's indicative of the top-heavy command. Yeah. But and exacerbates it. Exacerbates it exactly. Yeah. And so the problem they got is that the, the Germans are able to pick them off in penny packets, rather than as a concentrated whole. And obviously, concentration of force is key. But I would say, if anyone's thinking of uh, reading this book or and, and reading only one chapter in this book, Go it's on. the chapter about the French prisoner of war experience called "The War Is Over for Us," um, which is absolutely amazing. Okay. Be- because because that's not something... Well, I'll read that for next week. 1.8 million French soldiers were, went, in, went into the bag. That's a lot of people. Basically, the, the Germans have got 1.8 million French soldiers in the bag, so they can tell Vichy what to do. They're basically hostages, right? And yep. so when you look at the Vichy government and when you look at the question of how would a British government in the event of a defeat behaved, what would it have done? What concessions would it have made? Well, let's say the whole of the BEF were in the bag. Should have been. Should have been. Changes the picture quite uh, dramatically. It would, it would have. I'm pretty sure that would have been it. Yeah. So he also says, essentially, France is a prisoner of war, right? Mm. And the humiliation of defeat and incarceration is like drenched in French society. Goes right, runs right through everything. But the other point he also makes is he says, if France was occupied by a foreign army, so was Nazi Germany after 1940, because it's full of French prisoners of war. Right? <laughs> yes. And then subsequently a few more other nationalities. Well, exactly. So you've got this, you've got this thing where suddenly, fr- you know, and, and he goes into, basically, there's a really, there's a really interesting, naturally my eyes drawn to this after, you know, people know how interested I am in the sort of social sexual side of armies and what, what's going on. There's a French prisoner called Levreur who's given eight years because they're not allowed to fraternize because they're, they're working and stuff. Yeah. Right? So um, two, four, six, eight year sentences were ha- being handed down to many French enlisted prisoners for having sexual relations with German women. The sentence is proportional to the social situation of the woman. And if she's married or unmarried, a prisoner called Levreur was given eight years for having impregnated a mother and her two daughters. So, <laughs> I mean, right? Wow. So, well, it doesn't sound like being a prisoner war was too bad for him until he got caught. Well, German women were often seeking out relations with the prisoners, right? And here we go into the privation in Germany of the German population. These guys have got Red Cross parcels, right? Until until Vichy ends, right? They've got mm. Red Cross parcels, so they've got chocolate, right? Yeah. You know, all this stuff about, oh, Germany Germany never goes to full war economy is a nonsense. Germany's been a war economy since the 
late 30s. Well, rationing comes in the summer of 1939 in Germany. Well, exactly, right? So the chocolate is is get French men it's winning have them favors. chocolate, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it, it, it's really, really interesting because the, there's obviously this big collision between these French men in Germany, what that means for the German state, what they could get concessions they can get out of Vichy, but also what it's doing to Germany and the interaction between French and German mm. people, all of which is un- unpredicted in Hitler's ideas of conquest. Because after all, he doesn't understand people, Hitler, at, at all. So he doesn't no, understand, not. you know, that, that this, is, this is what's going to happen. Okay. Well, uh, l- let me read it for, and we'll let, we could maybe talk about it some more next week. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's absolutely absolutely fascinating. I love it when you read 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 books by kind of eminent historians, and you suddenly think, "Gosh, they're making me think about this in a completely different way about whatever it might be." Yeah, you know, they're sort of like game changer books, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And then Vichy, in turn, are, are, are using the anxiety of people who's you know men are in as a bargaining chip. Well, the, the, and that's the, the, that's the, the the work agreement that that Laval organises based on based on that, isn't it? But there's, but, but he uses it basically to blackmail people to support the Vichy state to support Petain. Mm. And how and how is he on Petain? What's what's his take on him? I think he's appalling. I mean, he, there's a chapter called "The Wisdom of a Great Leader," which is all about Petain. Mm. Okay, I might read that one as well. Which which is really really good. I was also you know, going to read one about air power. Is that good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. I mean, it's, it's, is it, it is a, it is a terrific book. It really, really okay. is. And especially as, you know, I mean, he's very good on, look, let's be honest now. The, the resistance is, is the finger, fingernail on the little finger of the French experience in the Second World War. And for all the talks of resistance, an awful lot of people were involved in arresting and deporting Jews. An awful lot mm. of people knew that was what was going on. Was it 200,000 resistors? 300,000 in Malice or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember what, yeah, what yeah. the figures are. Yeah, it's like, exactly. It's, 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 you know, that's not precise, but it's, it, yeah, but, yeah. but it's more Malice than there were resistors and stuff. Well, certainly until August 1944, anyway. Well, exactly. But, I mean, he's, you know, you've still got people joining the SS in after the fall of Paris. French people joining the SS after the fall of Paris. So what, what's that? Yeah, I know, exactly. Well, that's fear of, that's fear of, fear of Western spread of communism, isn't it? More than anything else? Well, yeah, but I think fear of the Western fall of communism, for some people, but a, a belief in Nazism as the dynamic force to save Europe from communism, which isn't, mm. I don't think is the same thing as fear of communism. No. Okay. Yep. I think there has to be, there has to be a, a distinction, but it's, I mean, he's also, I mean, he's just fascinating on the, the politics around de Gaulle, de Gaulle establishing himself, the people who are attracted to him and how basic there is no one in the free French movement really for, for an awfully long time. And it's misfits and it's, you know, adventurers, and it's well, also because it, yes, because it, it's it's Dastier de la Vigory, isn't it, and things like that. These people, and you know, one of the problems you have with all these resistance movements is is that most of the people are are political, um, yeah. you know, so they're politicians, yeah. um, and they're often angry politicians, and they feel incredibly strongly about their own personal beliefs. And that doesn't make them the best designed people to be no. resistors because no. they haven't been trained in secret intelligence work. Their own personal things get, you know, personal yeah. convictions get in the way all the time. So it's a bit of a mess. And also, you know, you don't, you don't, you know, you don't have WhatsApp groups and you don't have Facebook and you don't have means of organizing yourself very effectively when you, when your, when your country's been shut down. Yeah. I mean, the funny bit about, uh, about Petain, you know, because, because Vichy's slogan is Patrie, Famille, Travail. Yeah. You know, country family work yeah. and basically and there's a french historian called pierre Sevon who says that well petain betrayed his fatherland had no family and his daily schedule was a leisurely work shy routine <laughs> his principal massage, pre- massage pre- at 11 exactly well <laughs> lunch mainly lunch you know it's the it's the and that, that you're using verdun to basically get over the fact you've been defeated i mean it's it's mm. it's it, it's such an interesting book I mean, we're running out of time. The thing that there's one thing though that really, when we when we get to torch, which is where we kind of started this discussion, when he gets to torch, the point he makes: the Americans stage an invasion of North Africa within a year of joining the war. Within right? a year. Within a year. It's not even. It's eleven, it's 11 months, months since, yep. since 11 Pearl months. Harbor. It's an amazing achievement. Well, also, but you've also got you've got you can you can argue it's it's Klaus Fitz's strategic dynamic, isn't it? As the landings continue. That, mm. You know, the closer you get to Germany, the harder they get. So you start off with a sort of a relatively easy one. Well, this is your point. Point, right? You know, if you're going to fight, take on the on the Nazis, fight them as where it's least convenient for them. Yeah, exactly. So that's what they're doing. So he, so, but but it's the way the the landings get more intense the closer they get to Germany. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm I'm actually in the midst of avalanche at the moment, you know, which is the invasion of Salerno. It is 
bonkers. It's so high risk. It's just yeah. unbelievable. And they all know it. They all yeah. know it. Yeah. They're sitting on that ship just going, we're going to have a hell of a fight. This is going to be a real tough one. But he says, torch, right? Yeah. You, you know, there's all this stuff about how the British bamboozled the Americans into torch, right? Basically, the Americans are kind of like bamboozled into torch yeah. because the British don't want to do sledgehammer, which is the an anvil and all that, which is the D Day in 1943 idea that's being. Well, originally around. it's 1942, don't forget. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But basically, it's really interesting. So he says he thinks the general view on this is wrong and that Roosevelt, Roosevelt grabs at torch oh he can Roosevelt is the big advocate he but basically why? tells everyone what what's the thing that makes him go hang on a minute we really need to, we need to get into vichy we need to sort vichy out what's the thing because it's to do with sorting vichy out as much as anything else what's the thing well i thought it was my understanding was, was it's, it it means he can keep his promise he can keep his promise to molotov that they'll go into action yeah. against the germans that year yeah test the water well admiral lay writes to him yeah in and says who's his great friend is his great friend, who is the ambassador to Vichy, yep. right? Now that Vichy has, without objection, handed Indochina over to Japan, it will be difficult to refuse Germany a present to French Africa when a new demand is backed by threats is made. So it's it's to do with, because the French have submitted to the Japanese, Vichy French have submitted to the Japanese. It's all about, well, so it, it's the Pacific again. It's the global picture. Yeah. Loving that. Isn't that interesting? That's amazing. Yeah. Of course, it all makes so much sense. I think I've got to go away and rewrite some books. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best single thing I've heard all podcast. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, that, that's really, really fantastic. Okay, I'm going to go and have a look at all that. I'm, I'm going to look at that. And actually, I've got Lay's... I, I was there. It's, it's his, his autobiography. It's in Mike Nyberg's um, When France Fell as well, his recent... Well, I don't remember reading that. I read Mike's book. I just... Okay. Well, let, we we should. I think there's more to go on this. And when we say, you know, threats threats to Vichy from the German, well, 1.8 million prisoners of war. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's That's your bargaining amazing. chip. Yeah, that's no, great, great stuff. Okay, well, I need to have a, I need to get stuck into this one. Anyway, um, I don't know what we've got coming up on Thursday, but we're we're gradually assembling this diary project, aren't we? It's being yeah, being yeah. That's all looking good. Making making great great inroads on that. And next week we've got our Stalingrad week. Yeah, which we will be putting together during this week anyway we will see you all very soon thanks very much for listening hey, au revoir yeah au revoir adieu adieu yeah, adieu mes amis <laughs> <laughs> cheerio